Our second Bible reading is Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads to pray for God's help in understanding and applying those words. A prayer based on Psalm 119, verse 18. Heavenly Father, please open our eyes that we may see wonderful things out of your word. For Jesus' sake, Amen. On December the 8th, 1941, at 12.30 in the afternoon, Franklin Roosevelt addressed a joint session of Congress. The previous day, described by Roosevelt as a date which will live in infamy, a U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii had been attacked by Japan. More than 2,000 Americans had been killed, four U.S battleships sunk, and 180 U.S. airplanes destroyed. In the closing words of his address, Roosevelt asked Congress to declare that since the attack, a state of war has existed. That declaration of war was quickly brought to a vote, and it passed unanimously in the Senate, and with just one vote against it in the House. Roosevelt then signed the declaration that same afternoon. Three days later, similar declarations of war were signed against both Germany and Italy. You can imagine people telling their neighbours, especially in rural areas where people didn't own a radio or receive a daily newspaper, you can imagine them saying to one another, have you heard? War has been declared. We are at war. Many people would have been surprised by that news because the, the attack on Pearl Harbor was entirely unexpected and for the previous two years America had stayed neutral while World War II unfolded. Have you heard? We're at war. In today's passage, Paul is saying something similar to the Christians receiving his letter. He wants them to know they're at war. And like any good general, he wants them to know 
who they're fighting, what their objective is in the conflict, and how to use the combat equipment they've been given. Perhaps you yourself have been unaware that you're in a state of war. And perhaps you're surprised to hear it, just like many Americans would have been in December 1941. Or perhaps you've known about this state of war in the past, but it's been a long time since you gave it serious attention. We need to listen carefully to what God is saying in this passage so that we don't give our opponent the gift of our own unawareness. Unawareness leads to unpreparedness. It's what any wartime opponent longs to find in the other side. Unawareness, unpreparedness. Let's not give our opponent that gift. We'll look first at the enemy, then we'll think about our end goal before we finish with the equipment we've been given. So let's begin with our enemy. Our enemy. Who are we fighting? Paul tells us in verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Our opponent is the devil. He's been our opponent since the beginning, since before the fall. Combat began in the Garden of Eden. That was the battleground for humanity's first fight against the devil. And the devil was victorious. He persuaded Adam and Eve to eat from the forbidden tree, breaking the only command God had given them. As a result of their disobedience, they were exiled from the Garden of Eden and driven out into a fallen world. And from that point on, the human race has been under the devil's authority. If you set aside divine intervention and you just consider human beings left to our own nature, our own resources, we've been under the devil's authority since the fall. Because humanity was defeated in that first battle, We've been born into defeat ever since. The devil is too strong for us. One reason why the devil's too strong for humanity can be seen in verse 12. It says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's a very alarming verse, verse 12. It's intended to be alarming. It's intended to show us what we're up against. The devil rules over a mighty army of fallen angels, usually called demons. They're far too powerful for a single human being to overcome by nature alone. Now these truths are very alien to the average 21st century Westerner. 
They wouldn't sound strange to people in many other parts of the world, but they do sound strange to Western ears. A mighty army of fallen angels. In the West, you might encounter that in a graphic novel about the occult, perhaps, or a, a horror movie. But our culture doesn't take demons or the devil seriously as a feature of reality. And our culture prefers to think much more optimistically about humanity's ability to learn from our mistakes and do the right thing. But that optimistic view of reality that we find all around us in the West, no devil or demons, human beings who can learn from our mistakes and do the right thing, that optimism just has a bad fit with reality, with the daily TV news. Just think of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. U.S. General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, estimates that 100,000 Russian soldiers have been killed or wounded during the war so far, with a similar number of casualties on the Ukrainian side. He's also said that as many as 40,000 Ukrainian civilians have been killed. 40,000 civilians. Time will tell how many Ukrainians have been tortured or raped. Millions were forced to flee the country and become refugees. There's been widespread devastation of property and infrastructure. The country is a shell of its former self. And for what purpose? Just so that one nation, one political arrangement, could extend its western border, bulging out further in one direction. What happened to humanity learning from our mistakes and doing the right thing? The biblical explanation has a much better fit with reality than western optimism about human nature. The Bible says that sometimes the devil incites human beings to sin in particular ways. It's mysterious. He doesn't always incite us to sin in the worst possible way all of the time. But sometimes he does incite people to sin in particular ways. And because he rules over us in our natural state, he successfully incites people to sin. We can see the fruits of his incitement in the thousands upon thousands of newly filled coffins in Russia and Ukraine. The Bible explains why the world is, at, is as it is. And it, it also explains our own personal experience of life. If you're anything like me, you'll have experienced times when you were tempted to sin, and despite knowing that what you were about to do was wrong, you went ahead and did it anyway. Speaking personally, I know that I do not have the resources in my own nature to enable me to overcome temptation and sin. I just don't have the natural strength within me to do that. Without God's help, sin is too strong for me and it's too strong for you 
It's too enticing and overpowering. And that's because there's a spiritual being behind sin who supplies it with its force. If you have the power to overcome all sin and all temptation without God's help, then, then perhaps you can disagree with what the Bible says about the existence of the devil. But if you know that sometimes you find sin irresistible, the Bible explains that to you. Sin is irresistible without God's help because the devil, a powerful spiritual being, gives sin its force. We're still thinking about the enemy we face and thankfully our profile of the devil isn't yet complete. There's a vitally important piece of information we haven't yet considered. Praise God, our opponent, the devil, is a conquered enemy. Listen to these verses from earlier in Ephesians. God put his power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things. In the Bible, when someone or something is under your feet, it's been conquered, it's under your control. And so when God placed all things under Jesus' feet, following Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, that means Jesus is victorious over all things, including the devil and those in verse 12. Jesus' victory was won at the cross. The devil had a hold over us, and in order to break that hold, Jesus put himself in our place. He received the punishment we ought to have received when he died on the cross. And so when we take heart from the devil's conquered status, we have to remember that came at a price. There was darkness, there was blood, there was abandonment and divine wrath. When Jesus died on the cross, the serpent was crushed underfoot, but the conqueror's heel was struck by the serpent's fangs. It was an agonizing fight, but it was a fight Jesus won. He declared it is finished. And because it's finished, because there's nothing more to pay, death had no grip on Jesus. He was raised from the dead and seated at God's right hand far above all his enemies. The devil has been defeated. But he hasn't yet been destroyed. That's still to come. And while we wait for his destruction, he remains a dangerous adversary. He should not be underestimated. Our only hope is to trust in Jesus and share in his victory. Verse 10 says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We're not strong enough by ourselves to resist the devil, but in Christ, we face the enemy with the conqueror's strength. Without Christ, the devil is bigger than you. 
But if you're strong in the Lord, the devil will shrink in size because the Lord has defeated him. Let's turn now to the second part of the sermon, the end goal, the end goal. We've seen that in Christ, we have superior power to the devil in Christ. But what should we do with that superior power? What's our end goal, our strategic objective in this conflict? Any army in a state of war has to know what its objective is in order to function effectively. And at this point, I'm going to do something I very rarely do mid-sermon. I'm going to hand it over to you. Look at verse 11 verse 13 and verse 14 and spend 30 seconds looking at those verses. My second hand on my watch is ticking. Verse 11, verse 13, verse 14. And after we've had 30 seconds or so to look at those verses, I'll invite anyone to shout out in one word what our strategic objective is in this fight against the devil. Don't shout out until I say that the 30 seconds are up. Verse 11, verse 13, and verse 14. One word that summarizes our end goal. Who wants yeah. to shout? Thank you, Sean and Betsy. And I hope everyone else agrees with that one word summary. Stand. We're to stand. Here's how the ESV study Bible puts it. Paul portrays Christians as soldiers in the battle line holding fast against the enemy's charge. End quote. In wartime situations, when your job is to hold your ground, to stand firm, that's usually because your position is a good one. The time to stand firm is when you have valuable territory that gives you control of the surrounding area. And our strong position is our union with Christ, our oneness with him. Remember verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He's the great conqueror who sits in the heavens with all his enemies beneath his feet. Now to stand firm in Christ, we'll need to put on the armor of God. But before we turn to that armor, verses 14 through 17, there's one last thing we need to notice, which is Paul's assumption that we'll be fighting this battle as a group, as an army. The plurals of verse 13 in the original language are unfortunately obscured by our English you because you in English can be either singular or plural and it's hard to tell so it can be easy to think verse 13 is addressing each one of us as individuals fighting Satan alone but here's what verse 13 sounds like if we use y'all to translate the plural use in the original language. Verse 13. Therefore, y'all put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, y'all may be able to stand your ground, and after y'all have done everything, to stand. 
we're not fighting alone. For some reason, y'all are laughing. But this is a very serious point. We are not standing alone. Paul addresses the Christians he's writing to as a battle group. Comrades in arms who are standing together. A Bible commentator named Max Turner makes the point like this. Note that Paul addresses the whole church corporately as an army, not singular saints. Lone soldiers are easy to pick off. End quote. Sometimes circumstances might lead to a Christian being isolated and fighting alone. Solitary confinement in prison, perhaps, might be one example of that. But that's not the norm. And it's not something we should seek out for ourselves. Paul's assumption is that we won't be solo warriors. He assumes we'll be part of a battalion fighting alongside other believers in the local church. Well, it's time for us to move on to the third part of the sermon. Our equipment. Our equipment. These Bible verses itemizing the armor of God are very famous, but they must be read with the previous verses kept in view. We've seen from verses 10 through 13 that our objective is defensive. It's to stand firm in Christ, holding our ground. And we've also seen that we don't stand alone, we stand together. Those insights will be useful for us as we examine this battle equipment and figure out how exactly to put it on. The armour is divided into two sets of three pieces. Halfway through, at the start of verse 16, it says, in addition to all this, and that acts as a kind of separating line between the two sets of armour. Another difference between the, the two sets of three is that the first three armour pieces are all things that stay constantly in position. The belt and the breastplate and footwear, they're all tied or bound. The second set of three are things that are taken up. You can see those take verbs. Take up the shield of faith. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. So we'll look at each set of three in turn. The first set is made up of the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and footwear described as the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. Truth, righteousness, and peace. Truth, righteousness, and peace. Earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul has used each of those three words to talk about the new lifestyle of believers in Jesus. Here are some quotes from earlier in the book of Ephesians. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Paul said back in chapter 4, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour. Instead of speaking falsely, we're to speak the truth. Moving on to righteousness, Paul said this also in chapter 4, put off your old self, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and put on the new self created in true righteousness and holiness. He's talking about right living, holy living. We need to put it on with God's help. 
It's similar with piece, the key word in the footwear part of the armour. Earlier in the letter in chapter 2, Paul said that Jesus has created in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The point there is that Jesus overcomes the deep divisions between different groups of people. He joins people together and makes them one. And that brings peace where previously there was disunity. And then there's an appeal for peace in chapter 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So these first three armour pieces are all to do with our behaviour as comrades in arms. If we speak truthfully, if we act righteously, and if we maintain peace among ourselves, it will be very hard for the devil to drive us away from our stronghold. We'll be an effective defensive unit holding our ground. If on the other hand we speak falsely to one another and act unrighteously and slip back into those old tribal divisions, then it will be easy for the devil to cause spiritual mayhem. Sadly, it's not hard to think of examples from church history or church present day where Christians haven't worn these first three armor pieces, these behavioral armor pieces, truthfulness, righteousness, right living, and peace. And when that happens, when those armor pieces aren't tied on, bound in position, well, instead of Christians helping one another stand firm in Christ, Christians make it harder for their fellow believers to hold their ground. Here's an example. This is a quote from an article published back in 2010 with the title, When a Church Splits, written by someone who went through that experience. The writer says, The effect of this church split, and this was a church split that was not by design, not designed to plant a new church elsewhere. It was a split caused by disagreement, disunity, unhappiness within the church between two factions. Back to the quote. The effect of this church split on my Christian walk was a combination of anger and cynicism. I was angry at the individuals who I believed had caused this disunity. I was angry with those who I believed had behaved inappropriately in response. I was angry with those who I felt should have done more to prevent it. And most, significant, most significantly, I confess that I was angry with God. I could not understand why he had allowed this to happen. Although I could not walk away from my faith, which I knew to be true, I became the kind of Christian who really did not do church. My cynicism made being involved actively in a new church virtually impossible. I could feel myself cringing through services, second-guessing the motives and behaviours of all the Christians I met as I church-hopped for a while before finally settling for a longer lie-in on a Sunday morning. Please think very carefully before you split a church. That's the end of the quote. What a chilling tale of disunity and the effects of disunity, the lack of peace in that church. 
made it so much harder for the writer of that article to stay standing in Christ. Most cases of church hurt happen because the belt of truth has been unbuckled. Perhaps a pastor tells a a serious lie. Or because the breastplate of righteousness is not in place. There's sin going on in the congregation and, and no one's doing anything about it. Or because the footwear of peace has been discarded. These are God-given armour pieces. And we must keep them in place with his powerful help. Praying for his help. Let's move on to the second set of three armour pieces. As I said before, unlike the previous set, which are essentially always in place, We're told to take up these next three things. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. They're things we should consciously reach out for when we feel threatened and spiritually attacked. Verse 13 says, So that when the day of evil comes, which implies there are particular times of confrontation and spiritual challenge. We need to reach out for the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, particularly at those times. We'll look at each in turn. First, the shield of faith. The shields used by Roman soldiers were like doors. You could get your whole body behind them if you crouched down behind those Roman shields. As we can tell from verse 16, the shields offered protection from flaming arrows fired by enemy archers. In a similar way, faith in the God of the Bible will help us hold our ground when the devil sends fiery darts speeding towards us. Arrows like temptation and despair. Faith can even help with the fiery arrow of doubt. That might sound strange. How could faith help with doubt? Well, I've often told myself, in the midst of doubt, I believe that I will believe. I believe that I will believe. And I found that very encouraging and strengthening as a way to dissolve the threat of doubt. God is loving and good and powerful. He can be trusted. And as we trust in him, we'll find protective refuge from the devil's flaming arrows. And let's not forget those yawls our fellow believers can help us take refuge behind the shield of faith. I find Sunday after Sunday that worshipping alongside other believers at church stirs up my faith in God. Then verse 17 speaks of the helmet of salvation. Since Paul is writing to saved believers, This helmet of salvation is best understood as 
assurance of salvation. God wants us to be sure of our salvation through the Lord Jesus. If you trust in him, if you've received the forgiveness he offers, and if you've experienced the power of the Spirit at work in your life, you can be sure of your salvation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1. That is a gloriously comforting truth that stops the devil from filling us with despair. The devil wants us to think we've blown it. He wants us to think we've ruined everything. But we can be sure of our salvation because it's not earned by our performance. It was earned by Christ on the cross. Whoever trusts in Christ can put on the helmet of salvation. And I realized as we were singing, yet not I, but through Christ in me, that the third verse is a verse about putting on the helmet of salvation. It doesn't use those words, but that's what we're doing as we sing these words. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. That's that helmet of salvation in place. The future sure, the price that has been paid for Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. And he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. That's putting on the helmet of salvation. Telling ourselves those truths. Or singing them together with other believers, as we did earlier. So take up this helmet. It's part of your defensive armour, the assurance of salvation. And lastly, we should strap on our sword, the Word of God. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tested by the devil, and Jesus strikes back each time by quoting scripture. And each time, the devil has no reply. To wield the sword of the Spirit effectively like that requires knowledge of the Word of God. And that should incentivize us in our personal study of God's Word. But let's remember that we fight alongside others. We fight as a battalion. If you're struggling with temptation or doubt, please don't struggle alone. Find a trusted Christian friend with good Bible knowledge. A friend like that can put the Word of God into your hands so that you can strike back with it against the devil. Left to our own resources, we are too weak to resist the devil, but we haven't been left to our own resources. Christ has already fought against the devil for us and won. Our task now is to stand, to hold our ground in Christ, and we've been supplied with God-given armour so that we can do just that, so that we can stand. We're not the ones destined to defeat and destruction. No, it's the devil who's already 
been defeated and who will be destroyed. We share in that victory by holding our ground in Christ. Let's pray. When the day of evil comes. Father, we confess that those words do give us a chill, as they're meant to. We know, Father, that left to ourselves, we would not be able to stand when the day of evil comes. We pray, Father, that you would fill us with confidence that we will be able to stand because we stand in Christ alongside one another. We pray, Father, that this armour would be put on by the people of this church. Help us do that. Help us with those behavioural armour pieces and help us to take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation and the word of God. Father, would we experience your strengthening power, enabling us to hold our ground in Christ. And so, Father, by the power of God, we say that we do expect to stand when the day of evil comes. Bring these things to mind and enable us to stand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's time for our final song. O church, arise and put your armour on. Hear the call of Christ our captain, for now the weak, that's all of us, can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given them.